Cheerio! As human beings, don't we enjoy enjoyment? This is Five Golden Things, The Liberty Lists, a podcast of whimsy from Liberty Church Collingswood and libertycollingswood.org. We'll hear from friends as we explore everything from potent potables to morsel delectables, awkward laughables to moment teachables. You'll get lots of different categories, but remember that for each one, there can be only five. Plus a mulligan or two. Five, four, three, two, one. Lift off. Hello, everybody. Welcome to, once again, Five Golden Things, The Liberty Lists. Right before the podcast went on the air, Turtle Doves, I went through some alternative names for the podcast before we launched a month or two ago. High Five, The Liberty List. What do you think it means if our title would have been Bread and Circuses, The Liberty List? (laughs) And I was telling those things to my dad, James Anger Sr., who is on the podcast today. Daddy, how are you? I'm well, thanks. And you? you? I'm... I'm I'm doing good. So it's it's a pleasure to have you back in the studio to give a balancing perspective or a, another slice of your life. If, yeah, if previously this is beginning to feel like work. <laughs> well, but the money's worth it though, right? Yeah. <laughs> Where's the wine? <laughs> you left the box at the house. <laughs> I, I debated bringing it. Oh boy, that but I, I thought you might not want me inebriated when we do this. <laughs> uh, turtle doves, right in. If, if if you want my tipsy dad on a podcast in the future for box wine, <laughs> let us know. Five golden things at gmail.com. So, Daddy, we've we've spoken to you before about five things you should know about growing up on a farm. I. I had a wonderful time. I'd heard most of those stories and tidbits before, but some of them were new. And I think my batting average of things that I already know is going to be lower for this one, where we're talking about five things that you should know about being a rocket scientist. So my dad went from farming to rocketry in in a few short years. And people always say, well, it's not rocket science, but the question is, what is rocket science? And I figured this this would be fun. Daddy, I don't know if you were planning on it, but before we jump into counting down from number five, why don't you give us a quick bio sketch about you and where you worked and what you worked on? Okay, well, um, I went from the farm to college. Yep. And uh, after, after I graduated uh, from college... I went to work for uh, the Boeing Company in Seattle, mm-hmm. and that was in that was in 1959. Right. And in 1962, the Apollo program, mm-hmm. the government decided to launch the Apollo program. Right. And uh, it was an opportunity to get back from the the worst coast. <laughs> okay. Closer to the best coast. <laughs> we about five percent of our listeners come from California, Daddy, and and then also Oregon, another four percent. So you should know that. Well, they, they, the <laughs> my, fact, my fact dad says hi. The fact they're from there says something. God, wow, <laughs> Daddy, I'd... I hated the weather in Seattle. That that was the problem. I I would go out and it it didn't appear like it was raining, but if I was out for five or ten minutes, I was wet. Right. So, so there, there is a, 
a deep streak of misanthropy that runs through anger bed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine <laughs> nine months out of the year, you were wet, and the other the other three, you never <laughs> saw a cloud. It was really a weird situation. Anyhow, exactly. So there is Seattle and Boeing. Right, and Boeing won the uh, contract uh, for the first stage rocket booster mm-hmm. for the Apollo program, right. which was called uh, it was called the Saturn rocket mm-hmm. booster hmm. and uh so when you pose this topic is about rocketry mm-hmm. really uh what i'm going to deal with specifically mm-hmm. is uh, my experiences with regard to rocketry without mm-hmm. going into rocketry as a general topic <laughs> if that's okay that's okay <laughs> <laughs> And so then uh, I was also instructed to uh, pick titles for these various things. Right. And uh, I'm not ranking them from least to most important. They're they're chronological. Okay. That that sounds good. And just to finish the bio, you went from there via Alabama to New Orleans. Yes, we went to New Orleans. And... uh, the thing, the thing is about uh, the Apollo program, uh, w- one of the considerations was to get the most uh, congressional support for it possible. Mm-hmm. So the whole project was distributed around the country. One part was built in New Orleans. Uh, that part was tested in Mississippi. Right. Then it was shipped to uh, Florida. Other parts were in St. Louis. A lot of it was in uh, California mm-hmm. and in, uh, in New England. And they got as many companies involved as they could in order to get senators and congressmen from right. all over the country to, to, to back up the project. Yeah. So, um, the the first uh, number five. Yeah, n- well, <laughs> but if number it's number one chronologically, <laughs> okay. uh, I would I would entitle it uh, humiliation and consternation. Oh, okay. And the reason is uh, that in 1957, I was I can remember distinctly walking through the dormitory on the way to class mm-hmm. when a friend of mine came by all excited and told me that the Russians had just launched a, a, a satellite into space called Sputnik. Right. And it was an electrifying idea. Hmm. And in addition to that, it was totally humiliating that the Russians had done this right. rather, rather than the, the United States doing it. Yeah. So the country was immediately totally upset because mm-hmm. we were in a, we were in a light, what we thought was a life and death struggle yeah. with the Soviet Union. Yeah, Cold War was hot. Right. And so as a result, the fact that they were what seemed like uh, a, a complete step ahead of, of the United States, it was a really a, fr- a frightening situation. Yeah. And, and it was humiliating because right. we thought the United States was supposed to be first in everything. Yeah. 
And so as a result, uh, the whole country was uh, up in arms and wanting to know what went wrong and how could this have happened and all that sort of thing. Yeah. <clears throat> was, was it Kennedy in his inaugural speech in 1960 that he said, we're going to put a man on the moon? I, I was going to okay, get Okay, keep, keep going. I was going to get Sorry. <laughs> so uh, so that, that was the situation in 1957. And then... Another aspect of the problem that made it more difficult uh, from a, a standpoint of how people thought things were going is the Russians, or the Soviet Union actually, not the Russians, the Soviet Union, the way they did things, they did everything in secret. Mm-hmm. So you only ever saw their successes. Right. Any failures that they had along the way were were unknown and completely buried. Mm-hmm. So all we ever saw was successful launches of spacecraft yeah. by by them. Right. In the in contrast to that, in the United States, we were then uh, desperately trying to catch up. So uh, we had something called Project Vanguard. Hmm. And so we were trying to launch satellites uh, from Florida, Cape Canaveral. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know how many. It could have been four. It could have been eight. It could have been three. I cannot remember. But it was on television for the whole country to watch America's spacecraft lift off, mm-hmm. get two or three feet off the ground and blow up. <laughs> And it just kept happening one one after another. Right. So people just kept feeling worse and worse and worse as time went on about about this whole thing. Yeah. And uh, Eisenhower was president then, Mm -hmm. and Nixon was the vice president. Right. So I actually think that those failures were one of the reasons why uh, Nixon lost the 1960 Hmm. uh, election. And, and and Kennedy and Kennedy won. Yeah, because uh, one of his biggest selling points up to the election was the missile gap. Mm-hmm. That was the term he used for it. Yeah, the Soviet Union's missiles were ready to strike us with uh, nuclear bombs, mm-hmm. and the United States obviously couldn't get anything off the ground. So. Right. There was a tremendous missile gap, and if he was elected, he was going to get rid of the missile gap. Yeah. Ironically, the moment he got elected, he found out there really wasn't any missile gap, <laughs> and the whole idea went away. <laughs> it wasn't necessary. Politics. <laughs> yeah, but it was. But it got him elected. Yep. So during his uh, during his either inaugural speech or his first state of the union oh, okay. i i can't remember which it's when he announced that we are going to put a man on the moon uh and and return him right that's a vital piece of information yeah and and return him and he did say a man at that point in time yeah. um in this decade mm-hmm. and that was 1960 right that he was saying that so um, everybody was excited about it. Yeah. And uh, after that, uh, things, took, things took off rather rapidly. Prior to that, we had the national NACA, which was the National Aeronautical... I, I don't know what the C stood for, but what came into being then was NASA. Mm-hmm. The National Aeronautics and Space right. 
Association or yeah. whatever. I don't know what the Ministry last day yeah. is for. Anyhow, uh, that came into being, and that was the organization that directed the whole project. Mm-hmm. But everything that was done on it was done uh, by private private companies. By contracts. Yes, mm-hmm. they contracted everything okay. out. NASA didn't do anything itself. They oversaw hmm. and instructed everybody. Right. And we referred to them unaffectionately as our NASA masses <laughs> because they were often a, a giant pain in, in, right. in, the, in the backside. <laughs> so anyhow, uh, Boeing competed and won the contract for the first stage rocket booster. Hmm. And um, it was... It was one of the largest vehicles or pieces of equipment at that point in time that had ever been built. It hmm. was 33 feet in diameter wow. and 120 feet long. Uh-huh. So it was more than a third of a football field. Hmm. And uh, how wide is a football field? Uh, I'm not sure. Is it, uh, is it 100 feet? Could be. So it was a third of it was more than it was a third of the width of a football field, yeah, and and a th- more than a third long. So it was an, it was a, an extremely large piece of uh, equipment, mm-hmm. and there were very few places readily available in the United States with hangar space high enough yeah. that you'd be able to fabricate something like that. Hmm. New Orleans happened to have a, a leftover plant from World War II. Huh. That, that, I didn't know that detail. That, that fit the bill. Uh-huh. And that also was part of the thing of spreading it around, because that way then you got the senators from uh, New Orleans mm-hmm. to back the project. Right. You agreed to ship it by barge mm-hmm. to Mississippi to test fire it. So then you got the senators in Mississippi. Yeah, everybody's happy. And the congressmen from there. And then you took it through a canal to Florida, Mm -hmm. to Cape Canaveral. And so then Florida was behind it. Mm -hmm. So what they, it was, it was intended to spread this thing around in order to get everybody behind it. And um, everybody in the country, I think, generally speaking, everybody was really, really excited about about doing this. And uh, it, to me, I think it's the last time the country was really united behind anything hmm. because Vietnam was yeah. happening at the same time hmm. and the country was splintered over that and, and I don't think Never I don't recovered. think we, we ever got back yeah. to being all of us behind anything. Mm-hmm. So um, that, that was that was the begin, that was the, the beginning of the project. So um, Boeing got the contract for the first stage, and it was going to be fabricated in, and designed in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And they immediately, in a matter of a few months, had to find 5,000 engineers <laughs> to mad this project in New Orleans, yeah. which was a, a, a really daunting task. Where are you going to get that many engineers mm. that quickly? I think the majority of them came from uh, Seattle, yeah. but they also got people from um, from Philadelphia mm-hmm. and from St. Louis because they had offices in those two locations, so they got additional people from there. But uh, I joined the project in March of 1962, mm-hmm. 
and uh, we went to Alabama where George C. Marshall Space Flight Center was located, which is where Na the, the NASA organization that handled the first stage rocket mm -hmm. booster was located. And so we were there until October, and then in October we, w we went on from there to, uh, to New Orleans yeah. to begin the project. Hmm. So um, that, was, that was the humiliating and consternation period right. during, during, that peri during that period of time. Um, so after we got down there, and what we found is we found a city that didn't have any way of accommodating 5,000 new families. Yeah. It was really, really difficult to find a place to stay. Uh, they didn't have uh, an engineering building for us to work in, so we were scattered around mm -hmm. over the city of New Orleans. But uh, we embarked on the project from from that point in time. Hmm. So, all right, let's that, keep going. Today. That's that part of it. Number two. Uh, number two is um, I would describe it as the digital age. Oh, okay. Because. When I went to Boeing in 1959, um, digital computers had just really been invented. Hmm. And uh, Boeing had one or two of the only digital computers that were then available. Huh. So up until that point in time, uh, engineers were using uh, desk calculators and slide rules in order to do, <laughs> to do their work. Right. And the technology you needed for what we were about to embark on, that just would never have done the job. Yeah. So digital computing happened at that point in time. And um, the most most of what we were using to do that didn't exist the booster rocket that we were building was was enormous mm -hmm. and uh you needed some really sophisticated uh mathematical processes that really couldn't be couldn't have been done by hand mm -hmm. so you needed to have you needed to have digital uh computing capability in, in order to in order to do the things did, that had to be done for that. Did the Russians have computers earlier? Was Sputnik? No, with? I don't I I I would guess they didn't have uh, they didn't have probably much in the way of digital computers. You could have uh, you could have built a rocket to put an object in space, mm -hmm. but you couldn't have built a system to go to the moon right and and come back hmm. because uh you it the whole the whole apollo uh space system was built in sections mm -hmm. in other words there is a liftoff section which is the launch yeah rocket booster mm -hmm. it goes for like uh two maybe it burns for two and a half minutes or well no more like four or five minutes and it it finishes it drops off mm -hmm. the the next rocket stage ignites it takes you some further distance mm -hmm. the third stage it's dropped the third stage ignites and sends you out of earth orbit to the moon yeah when when it lands on the moon you have to have rockets to let you down gently mm -hmm. when you come back you leave the part of it that landed you there 
and you launch a, a rocket off the back of the spacecraft module yeah. to come back. So um, having to do all that with, without computers would have been ab- would have been absolutely impossible. Right. So uh, the the digital age was something that was happening at the very at that very point in time. And uh, having to build something that complicated, uh, we, would, we wouldn't have been able to do that. Um, compute, digital computers took up enormous space and were incredibly expensive. Yeah. So only a few people in, in the country, a few companies in the country would have them. NASA built a whole building, mm-hmm. a very large building with a, the computer system in it. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you had is you had um, you had one chance a day to make a computer run, <laughs> and it was. Do you know what the term key punch, key punch cards are? Do you have yeah. a concept yep. of yep. them? Yeah, because that was how you input the data on mm-hmm. key punch cards. Yeah, and um, you would have assembled a deck, um, maybe of thousands of cards with this information in it and and you'd send it off the computer run would happen overnight you get it back in the morning and if you had errors in any of that Uh you'd have to do it over again so that's more humiliation and consternation exactly so it it was really a very very difficult job to, to have to do but the computer's were the need for the computers was driven by the Apollo program. Right. So a lot of the benefit that we got as a result of this was because of the necessity of having to have it for that. Yep. So it helped everything. The technology wasn't just for that. It was for it benefited the country in, in every way. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to see if there's anything about... I, this particular thing that I, I remember to even add. in the 80s at, at your office at EDI, the computer room for the mainframe was not a room full of laptops, but it, it was a room with one giant computer in it. And, right. There, and, it was air conditioned. Yeah. And kept at a lower temperature. And, and storage in storage machines. Yeah. You, you had to have disk storage because you, you have to keep the data. <laughs> so. Um, as a result, I think, of uh, the, the space exploration that we were doing, it, it accelerated and it ended up producing the digital age. Very good. So that would be the second thing okay. I want to talk about. Um, the next thing doesn't really have to do that much with rocketry, but it, but it has to do with uh, the general feeling, and I would call that excitement. Yeah? Because... The Apollo program was really the most exciting engineering project, I think, in the world at the time. Yeah. So it was very, it was very exciting to work on it. And the staffing that was required for it was so enormous in terms of engineering. Mm-hmm. There weren't that many existing engineers to work on it, say, in 1957. Mm-hmm. But what happened is... Students in college started yeah, going that direction. Universities started expanding mm-hmm. the education in those areas. 
So by the time Kennedy said in 1960, we're going to go to the moon in this decade, Mm -hmm. what they were talking about is they were talking about getting a whole new set of engineers. Mm -hmm. So one of the really amazing things that you wouldn't find typical, I think, any time now is that aside from the supervision, Mm -hmm. everybody who was working on that project probably was less than 30 years old. Huh. I, I joined when... It was a young I, person's ballgame. I, right. I joined when I was 25, and I was middle-aged for <laughs> pretty much. For the, you were, you for were married the, with kids? And... <laughs> exactly. But, but what happened yeah. is everybody who was working on that was young. Mm-hmm. And it was, an, it was really an exciting, it was an exciting time to work. And yeah. we we had a, we had a ton of fun, right? And uh, you didn't have a lot of old codgers around uh-huh. who uh, didn't want to do things the old way or anything like right. that. So I I think I think the project the, it benefited from the fact that the people who were involved were were young and were excited and and ready to go off and, and, and do something new. Yeah, I can. So there are some stories that you've told me over the years about the young engineers that we probably can't say on this podcast. That's right. But, um, there's a number of those. <laughs> there's a, the, <laughs> but, but, but there is something about that sort of project that that's exciting on so many different levels. One, you're trying to beat the Russians to, to the right. moon. Right, exactly. So, so, so there, was, it was, there was an existential global crisis and then there's the whole dynamic of you're working on something that you and every other kid dreamed about when you were when you were growing up. Yeah, it and was what, what seemed absolutely it was the realm it, of story and science fiction. You were putting slide rule and pencil to paper to yep. figure out how to do it in our reality. Yeah, and and I think everybody really everybody in the country generally speaking was was behind it i'm i think i found maybe the one person in the country who was opposed to it who's that my (laughs) brother-in-law oh i I remember those stories i I was i was shocked (laughs) when i came up here and and he was about to marry Uh my sister yeah and we sat down to talk, and he let me know in no uncertain terms that he thought this was just a total waste of time and a boondoggle. <laughs> I was really surprised. And then I, I found out he was a school teacher, and what he wanted the money spent on was his salary. He was under <laughs> he was underpaid. <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sure he was he was watching the moon landing along with everybody else when the. When when the time came, that that's funny. But I I never forgot that Jerry Jerry didn't. He thought what I was doing was a waste of time. <laughs> well, you you kept going anyway. He didn't stop you. But but I think I think that's a minority view. <laughs> very very small one. <laughs> The Vietnam War came along though, and it splintered everybody yeah. after after that. Yeah. So anyhow, excitement is yeah. how, is how is how I would describe it. Right. And the title for the next section you already just said, crisis. Oh, oh okay. 
and this takes this takes a little bit. I will try and verbally describe a, a technical a technical problem and see whether or not you can comprehend what I'm saying. Um, the uh, uh, the Apollo vehicle was about 300 feet long, mm -hmm. and the diameter of the bottom section was 33 feet, right. which is like a tenth of the of the length. Mm -hmm. So it's 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 as long it's longer than a football field, right? And um, so everything in the world that's built has vibration mm -hmm. uh, modes that it likes to vibrate in. Yeah, you normally think of something vibrating in a bending way, mm -hmm. sideways, right? But things actually vibrate longitudinally along their length. Hmm. Well. One of the things that we were concerned about is that the, the first stage uh, rocket booster that Boeing was designing, this, the Saturn, um, you, you realize that these, these things do not breathe oxygen from the air because hmm. they don't have time to get it right. and it's not really available. Yeah. So they have to carry the oxygen along. Hmm. So there's liquid oxygen right. in tanks. So the Saturn vehicle was what it was is it was a giant oxygen liquid oxygen tank uh, in front of a giant tank full of jet fuel right. with five engines on the back end of it. Yeah. And big long uh, two two and a half foot diameter pipes mm -hmm. to, to bring the oxygen from the upper tank down to the engines and, mm -hmm. and, and also the uh, fuel, right. and they'd burn. Mm -hmm. Well, um, that vehicle has some vibration frequencies longitudinally that it normally would, would be vibrating in kind of like a pogo stick. Okay. And uh, so one of the things we were concerned about is that if the vibration would cause some uh, fluctuations in the pressure of the fluid going into the engines. Hmm. It would give you some variation in the amount of thrust. Right. And if that thrust variation happened to be synchronized with the motion, it could actually make it increase. Uh -huh. So it could oscillate to, uh, to destruction. Right. The whole thing. So it, the term that was coined for it is the pogo effect. Oh, that rings a bell. I don't know. Okay. So uh, it turned out, um, I, I, I don't. I think it was just uh, by random choice. I, I and an, and another younger engineer, mm -hmm. well, not younger. He was the same age as me. Anyhow, I, it, me and another guy, he was assigned to me. Mm -hmm. What we were told to do is investigate whether or not we th thought this was a true technical problem that we should be concerned about. Hmm. So for the next five, four years, hmm. we worked on that. Hmm. And we kept predicting that it was a, was a potential problem. Hmm. But, of course, they hadn't had any flights yet, so there, right. was, there, wasn't, any, there wasn't any way to know. Mm -hmm. um, and about five years in, uh, they they had their first unmanned launch, mm -hmm. and um, we got back telemetry data 
so we could see the vibrations of the vehicle and mm -hmm. what it was doing. And we saw some uh, oscillations that seemed to be growing and getting bigger, but then they died out. Hmm. But the third launch that they had, these pogo effect mm -hmm. oscillations kept getting larger and larger, and they were increasing when that phase finished and hmm. when, when when the rocket burned out yeah. and was taken away. Mm -hmm. So what we knew was if it had gone on another 20 or 30 seconds, the thing would have probably blown, wow. blown apart. Mm -hmm. So now everybody knew that this pogo effect was something that, that uh, could be catastrophic. So that meant we had we had to design something in order to get in order to get rid of it. Mm -hmm. So then I had we they expanded the the group. I I then had from then on I had six engineers working for me, mm -hmm. and we spent the next two years, seven days a week, mm -hmm. ten hours a day, perfecting something in order to in order to physically get get rid of that that particular thing hmm. so the whole project was paused for two years right while, while we figured out what, what we could do in order to eliminate it huh and um that that was what i i would term to be a, a crisis so then that's a big deal so then we got that finished we we did some uh testing on the pad just mm -hmm. to make sure that everything still ran okay and they launched the fourth unmanned launch and that one went fine hmm. and and they went they went they went fine after that wow so that that was crisis <laughs> that's exciting yeah. <laughs> i'm sure it was stressful as well as invigorating yeah. there were other near catastrophes along the way but i wasn't i wasn't intimately involved in any of them uh -huh. one of them there was uh, they almost uh, they circled the moon and almost didn't get home hmm. because of a problem and they had to makeshift things on the um, the spacecraft in order to get back right but uh thank god we we never lost anybody uh during during that that whole thing yeah yeah so we we got th we got through it safely hmm. so that would be what <laughs> i would describe as crisis very true number five okay number five uh is uh, celebration and exhilaration okay so in that one, everybody in the world, I think, was on TV uh -huh. watching the lunar landing. Right. And it happened in 1969. Mm -hmm. So we, we, made it, we made it within the decade. Yeah. In, in uh, July of that year. And um, I think many people all over the world were glued to their TVs when... Yeah. Uh, when Armstrong stepped off the steps onto the onto the lunar surface, mm -hmm. and then and they went bounding around because of the low gravity that was there, <laughs> all that sort of thing. So it was really, really an exciting time in the country. Where where were you watching? Happened. Where were you watching it? I well, I was I was at Boeing because you were at the office. I was at the office. <laughs> it was a work night for you. <laughs> yeah. Because we had telemetry data, we were analyzing because they had to get home. Uh huh. So what happened is every, everybody everybody continued to work until until they got back. Hmm. But it was uh, I mean 
it was really, really a happy, a happy time. Yeah. And we were so gratified that we beat the Russians. But the funny thing is, uh, what we found out later is they weren't even close. <laughs> and, and they never went. Right. <laughs> they, they, they never got there. There was no missile gap. <laughs> there was no missile gap all along. We just, we just, it was kind of, don't look back. Somebody may be gaining. <laughs> right. Did one, one, one other question with that. Did, did Grandma Jessie watch the, watch the lunar landing? I don't know. Huh. I don't know. Because she would have been here and we, we would have been in New Orleans. Did she have a TV in 69? Oh, yeah. Okay. She had a TV, but she didn't watch TV much. So um, since I was involved, I'm guessing she probably paid attention. Yeah. I don't know. Did, and, uh, did, did Uncle Jerry watch it? I have, I have no idea whether he still thought it was a waste of time or not. He just doesn't recognize all the things in life he got as a result. <laughs> right. The technology development yep. that happened yep. in that. Okay, so then... The, uh, the Lanyap. The, the Lanyap, the last part is, uh, the title of that is Abandonment. Huh. So, the uh, lunar landing happened. There were a number of additional exploration uh, landings. They built a lunar excursion module mm -hmm. and drove around and picked up rock and soil samples and things like that for an analysis, etc. But it very quickly became a ho-hum project. Oh. People just really didn't care anymore. Do you mean within NASA or no, I mean, public support? No, I mean... And Generally, ev okay. everywhere. Hmm. Okay, you got to the moon. Now what? Hmm. Big deal. We're at the moon. What do you do about it? Yeah. Well, nothing really. <laughs> we got here, but we <laughs> we can't really take advantage of it. Yeah. And so what happened is NASA had neglected while this was going on mm -hmm. to plan ahead for what the follow-on should be. Oh. In order to get. Uh, public opinion right. focused mm -hmm. on continuing hmm. and they nobody everybody just ignored that so we got there we got the job done and okay now let's uh, let's just move on in life right so they weren't prepared to get the government to continue to fund them mm -hmm. so funding essentially just fell off and dried up. Mm -hmm. The contracts that the companies were working on finished. Right. And so uh, in a very, very short period of time, once those subsequent... There were a number of subsequent launches where uh, a, a, a much smaller group of engineers would analyze the data, and I was involved in that. Mm -hmm. So the launch... Uh, the the landing was in '69, and we finished those those subsequent launches and the analysis of them, and the pro the program was completely shut down in 1973. Hmm. So four year four years later, it was shut down. But in the meanwhile, I I don't have an actual number, but I I believe more than 200,000 engineers. Mm -hmm. in the aerospace industry were just uh, fired, let go. Huh. And I knew, I knew engineers uh, on, on, that worked for Boeing in New Orleans that ended up send, selling shoes at Sears. Wow. Huh. To make a living. Hmm. So um, we did all that. 
We got trained to do all those things. We did our job right. Got everything finished. Yeah. Got a pat on the back, and said, and they told us to go go somewhere else. Right. So it was really, really a kind of a sad, a sad huh. ending to the whole thing hmm. when it was all over. Well, that's that's the arc of many things. Yeah, I suppose. <laughs> it, 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 it had its peak. It had its glory, and then it was gone. And then there's the the decline and fall. Yep. And it's no coincidence that we have glasses in the house that say EDI, which is the company you founded, begun in 1973. That's right. <laughs> that's, that, that's not the same year. timing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess from a personal standpoint, um, it, it was, it was uh, providential yeah. that it happened because otherwise I'd have probably ended up working for Boeing. Mm-hmm. Probably ended up owning a lot of umbrellas. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you might not exist That's because right. we'd have gone back to Seattle. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, yeah. Daddy, this has been wonderful. This is, a, I'm sure for our listeners, this is more than they've ever heard about, about the Apollo Project and about rocket science yeah well I, there wasn't as much science here as there was other things i hope that's i have hope that's okay <laughs> no i i wanted the stories and not just the x's and o's so this has been this has been perfect daddy uh, do you have any any parting words for audience uh no uh i wonder if we'll get to mars oh okay interesting idea We'll we'll have you on again and we can talk about that. <laughs> okay. And hey, thanks as All always, right, everybody. Thanks, for thanks once again in. to have my father. Emails here that have come in to five golden things pod at gmail.com. One is from Quinn, and this is about the episode that dropped last week, Maya and the top five video games. Maya's episode is so good. Loved it. Her list was so well thought out. And then she goes on to say, Hey, how about some topics? A million topics to hit. Five golden fantasy novels or fiction novels, five golden math, physics, and or science concepts. Quinn, maybe the this episode with my dad and the rocket science might go in that direction a little bit. And Quinn volunteers Becca for the fiction and fantasy novels. I like that idea. Quinn, thank you for writing in. Then we also, Quinn, first time writer in. Scott may or may not be the first time he's written in, but he says, based on the five golden things you did with Maya, which is very excellent, I think a great one would be top five video games. A good pairing going from non-electronic to electronic games, and Scott Ever-Magnanimous volunteered himself and Jake. I will be in touch. And then also Scott goes on to say, forgot to mention that when you interviewed your dad about living on the farm, it reminded me of trips I've gone on to visit my grandfather-in-law on his farm. The one thing I always remember about it is the pitch darkness and the middle being in the middle of nowhere and how creepy it was. We get that on our farm too. And I enjoy Scott's last sentence. It says, It was Stephanie something where I told Beckett that I had seen this horror movie before and I know how the strip's going to end. I, I think that's either autocorrect or voice to text. I think what Scott was meaning to say was it was definitely something instead of Stephanie, the name something, where I told Beckett, and I'll assume 
that's not Beckett. Uh, anyway, and the strip's going to end. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, Scott, sorry to, sorry to interrogate that email there. I always appreciate you writing in. Love you, brother. Love you all. Ta-ta, turtle doves. Wow. That was definitely a top five episode of Five Golden Things, The Liberty Lists. And remember, kids, schadenfreude ain't just a river in Egypt. Wade in the water a little deeper anytime at libertycollingswood.org and find us at the usual socials. Make us a top five follow, and you'll always be our number one. Toodle pip! <laughs>